Welcome to Speaking of Allyship, a podcast of the Boston Club, New England's premier women's leadership organization. I'm your host, Lisa Pryor, President. Here, we bring you personal stories and proven leadership practices for allyship, including what it means, how to be an ally, and how to receive or ask for allyship too. Allyship is expansive in the workplace, across gender, race, orientation, identity, or how about just thinking differently? This podcast brings you together with amazing business and thought leaders of Greater Boston, Massachusetts, and New England to hear their personal stories and journeys, and how their experiences and lessons learned shaped their leadership approach. You'll take away insights and tips, learn how allyship and mentorship can play a role in your career, and how you can pay it forward, and leadership practices on everything from how to create inclusive work environments to how to be brave and prepared for challenging conversations. Let's get started. Hello and welcome. This is Lisa Pryor, and I'm here today with Jane Steinmetz, the Managing Principal of EY's Boston office. And Jane, so delighted to have you here today, and thank you so much for being our first podcast guest. Well, thanks for inviting me. This is going to be a great series. I'm looking forward to following it. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're here to talk about allyship, and just very excited, though, to start by just learning a little bit more about Jane Mm -hmm. and you and your career in professional services. You've been through two big organizations now. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Yes. So I've always been in what we call the big four. Actually, back in the day, it was more than four. And I started off as a tax partner and I still do taxes now, but I've morphed into different roles. And so I operate as the managing principal of the Boston office, as well as what we would call the lead coordinating partner on some of our largest clients. Must be very exciting, and especially with the economy and the world changing so dramatically. It is, and it's with those changes that I actually get jazzed up. It's because really diving into business issues and trying to help our clients, that's what I find very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, just picking up on that thread, Mm -hmm. what was it like for you as a woman coming up in Mm -hmm. these four big professional services firms throughout your career? You know, it was interesting back in the day. So when I first started and up until the point, maybe right before when I made partner, like 2003 era, it was interesting because there was a lot of women entering the profession, but very few negligible that were at the partner level. So when I looked up, I didn't see any role models like me. I had role models, but they were all men. So there was so many times I thought, Am I really going to fit in at those ranks that I wanted to, you know, that I was aspiring to to be, but would I really fit in? Do I really have a chance is what would resonate with me? Do I have a chance since there's no other females? Thanks for sharing that. Mm Because I think that that's the sort of self-talk that we don't always talk about. Mm -hmm. So how did you find your way then? How did you find the answers to those questions? Well, it was challenging. And there was a period of time where I was actually thinking maybe I should exit professional services and look for a job that was more hospitable to females and working moms. That said, it wasn't the profession or the firms. I I worked for great firms, great people. It was just the way it was back then. There just wasn't a lot of focus and attention on promoting females. And I 
100% believe it was unconscious, unintended bias, Mm -hmm. but that's what I think it was. And so I went through this very interesting period of time where I thought, well, if I want to get promoted, I have to pretty much act like all the men around me. And that just did not work. You know, a lot of the guys I would hang out with, they really into sports. They loved going to steakhouses, golfing all the time. Don't play golf. I'm a vegetarian. And I literally (laughs) have a learning disability when it comes to sports. So I just, you know, it just, it was not going to work. So I I had to kind of get through that. But it sounds like you're not only resilient, but kind of strategic and how you, how did you make your way through that? What were your strategies? So I, I fumbled a bit. Then I can't even remember when it was, but at some point it just dawned on me. I just have to be myself. Win, lose, or draw. I just got to be my, you know, that, that cliche authentic self. Yes. But it was so true. And when I did that, things just started to click more. I was more effective at work because I wasn't trying to be somebody else. I was being myself. And I honestly think a lot of the leaders and I kind of clicked more because I was letting them see who I really was. And it was just more natural conversations and the like. So I just think it worked once I embraced that. I love that. And Mm. in part because, well, one of my questions would be, how do you think it's different for women today? I think there's still issues, but it's different, mainly because women now have a seat at the table. You know, back in the day, I would always, and I mean always, be the only woman at the table. In fact, if I saw another female at the table, I'd be like, huh, look at that. (laughs) (laughs) But if I walk into a room today and I'm the only woman in a group, I'm like, come on, really? Who thought this through? (laughs) It's just unacceptable today. Um, So women do have a seat at the table. There is um, much more focus on identifying talent from, you know, gender balanced leadership and, and, and really looking at talent across gender. I mm-hmm. love that. From, you know, part our, this is our series on allyship and uh, about welcoming people who, and mm-hmm. advocating for supporting for people who have not always had the seat mm-hmm. at the table. I'm curious, as you look back over the journey, how do you think it has been different for women from diverse communities mm-hmm. or for diverse women over the years? I think it has been very different and it is still different. And that pains me. I mean, like literally pains me. So as I mentioned back in the day, I questioned whether I was right for the professional services world, because when I looked up, I really didn't see folks like me. And I thought I had it walk and talk and look like a guy to, to get ahead. And obviously that wasn't going to work. <laughs> so things have changed for me as a white woman. And they haven't changed as much as they need to change for women of color. And I can't even imagine the frustration that that must cause because I'm frustrated over it. I, it's just, we have to have to through allyship, through shining a spotlight on the situation. We have to change that dynamic. Yeah, agreed. And curious to hear as you think about allyship, what does mm-hmm. that mean to you? In my opinion, allyship is really two things. One is taking the time 
to learn. I will never know what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes as, let's say, a Hispanic woman or a Black woman. I, I don't know. But I need to learn. I need to understand and really learn what their journey has been and is. I need to take the time to ask the right questions, lean in. There's actually good material that that's out there that can help socialize issues and not be afraid of the issue. Many times people are afraid of the issue, so they don't learn it. They're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing or whatever it is. So we have to increase our awareness of what others are experiencing. And then we have to, and the second part of allyship is we really have to use our privileges, our influence, our networks to be an active ally. So beyond just learning, but really activate what tools we're equipped with to help promote really talented folks the way that they should be. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. That's fantastic. What, what would be an example of, you know, allyship in everyday practice for you? So I'll, I'll go back to, I had a tax practice and this tax practice had about maybe six or seven partners in it. And when I look back, I, I just looked for talent. That's it. I just looked for talent. And I had women, a black man, a veteran and a Hispanic partner, a gay man. I mean, I, I wasn't actively seeking out a diverse group. I was looking for talent. That's it. Stop. And it just happened to be that the most talented people that I was looking for was this diverse group. And I reflect on that all the time because I feel as if in many cases, and I fact check myself, unconscious biases really do seep into the system. So if you see that you're forming a team and it's, you know, all kind of a monotone group, you have to reflect. And I've, and I've done that. I've like, sometimes I've formed a team. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I mean, hold on. Why is it all of this type of a person? You know, you really need to challenge yourself because the talent is out there. And if you're really looking for the best talent, it will be diverse talent. And so you have to challenge yourself as to the, the folks that you're selecting for positions, for experiences and for opportunities. It's great. So just hiring and who you have around the table and, mm-hmm. do and they- challenge others. Wonder as, a, mm-hmm. as, a, as an everyday practice. Curious, uh, you mentioned the difficult conversations and that sort of courage mm-hmm. around being comfortable with what's often uncomfortable. Right. What are some of the barriers for any of us yeah. in a work environment, especially? You know, it is a bit of a two way street, I will say. From my perspective, as let's say a, a white female in a leadership position, I need to ask questions and open up conversation. Now, sometimes folks don't want to talk and I respect that, but it is interesting when you start to have a dialogue about people's backgrounds and whatnot, how much closer you get to individuals and how it opens up an understanding. So for example, I was talking to this black man who works here and he had the most interesting awe-inspiring journey from his home country into the U.S. 
this story grabbed me. And I said to this individual, I said, my, my word, that is literally fascinating. Have you shared that? Like, I, I, I didn't know. And his response killed me. His response was, no, I don't share that because I don't know how well received it'll be. He said, not everyone might think like you, Jane, and, and appreciate that story. And that really killed me. And so I have to acknowledge that some folks may, through experiences, not want to share, right? But open up the conversation and try to create that safe space to have these conversations. I love that. And Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School years ago did some research and developed mm. this sort of concept she calls psychological safety. Mm. I feel like you've just hit something really important that can be a barrier in in corporate cultures, especially. Mm -hmm. How do you create the psychologically safe environment, not only for the people who have stories to share, yeah. and everyone has a story around the table, yeah, right. but as you said, for the folks who are listening and who might not know what's the right thing to say, mm -hmm. what are some strategies or approaches that, that you've used here at EY to encourage that kind of psychological safety? You know, we've had a lot of listening sessions, which have been great. We would have listening sessions on, you know, it was the George Floyd murder and the anti-Asian, you know, situations that were cropping up and they're tough, tough issues. And folks shared their perspective that were facing these aggressions. There were some individuals that were afraid to ask the wrong question. So on the one side, we have a society where you have to be very careful that you don't say the wrong thing. Right. And then sometimes that puts a chill That's right. on these conversations. Mm -hmm. And so you have to balance the two. And so with a lot of these listening sessions, we said, look, people are here because they care. They're concerned. They want to understand. They might say unintentionally something slightly the wrong way. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we had to open up that it's okay to make a mistake so that it, it opened up more freer conversations. But that is one of the barriers. People are afraid of saying the wrong thing because they don't want to offend somebody, but they're also afraid of saying the wrong thing because we do have a, rightfully so, an environment where, you know, you have to be respectful and, and, and navigating that. And, and try to. And it uh -huh. sounds like how you did that, you set the table by setting some expectations right. and some agreements. And really, it's that, you know, you said two things that really resonate for me. And that mm -hmm. is not only, well, three things, really, the just deep personal interest in continuing to grow, understand yourself mm -hmm. as a leader, where are my own right. natural ways of thinking or unconscious bias, right. translating that into who you bring to the table, mm -hmm. um, how you create the tone here mm -hmm. at EY, how you set the table for these kinds of conversations. Right. And something you said earlier, just getting to know each other one-on-one, -on -one, right? Like we're all mm -hmm. individuals and, and, and respecting and hearing each other's right. stories. I, I truly am fascinated by people. I love people. I just, I love to talk to people. I love socializing with people and I love their backgrounds. I, I just do. I just find it so interesting. Mm -hmm. So I personally ask questions and I, I'm maybe more comfortable than others, but I understand, you know, I hear that sometimes folks are uncomfortable asking certain questions or, you know, the, the, the receiver of those questions are uncomfortable answering it. So you just have to navigate that. But we, the main thing is to have the conversations, at least try and, and you can take it where 
the ind individuals in that group setting want to go. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And so we talked about allyship. Mm -hmm. Curious, how would you define what constitutes an ally? As I mentioned before, I think it really does fall in those two pieces. Someone that is trying to understand, actively trying to understand, and being in turn an active sponsor and mentor and coach to individuals. We just need more allies to do that and, and be the person that is going to offer your time to help coach and impart your knowledge on individuals that are trying to make their way through your organizations. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us um, some other things that are going on at EY that, you know, relate to allyship sure. and this sort of advancement. So we have a lot of programs globally and in the U.S. and the Americas, but what I'm most familiar with is ours here in Boston. And so we have a people advisory board. And in that board, we have different pillars, one of which is DEI. And I just can't say enough good for the very busy individuals who then allocate their time on the people advisory board with one mission, which is to make sure our day-to-day -day working environment is as inclusive and welcoming as it can be. That's why I love hearing right yes. down the hall, everybody <laughs> mucking it up and That's laughing right. in there, you know, as they're eating lunch in the cafeteria. So within the DEI pillar, we formed a, an action plan. And one of the action plans, one of the items on the action plan centers around allyship. And it is amazing how many people have volunteered to go through this allyship program. But it's the best way to describe it, one element of it, is it's almost like a book club where individuals will get a certain video or reading materials, could be a book, and then they come together and talk about it. And it will be something on inequality, racism, you know, some, like a, a meaty issue mm -hmm. and open it up for that dialogue between the groups, which could be, you know, individuals facing the discrimination as well as allies. And it creates that safe space to create that ability to have that conversation to gain a, another level of understanding. I love that. I love that. And then we have this other part of the allyship where individuals, if they feel comfortable, write about experiences they had. It could be experiences at a meeting. It could be experiences that they had somewhere in the Boston area where they really felt that there was a microaggression, that there was um, something insensitive said, and they just write about it and we compile it and then share it. So people understand, you know, if you see this, step in. Or if you use a certain word, maybe that isn't sitting well with folks. Like it's, it's again, to just raise that understanding. So there's all these ways that we try to bring allies, those who truly want to help together to gain another level of understanding that first pillar. Then secondly, we have a lot of programs through our DEI group where we, we we help curate a mentor-mentee type relationship where one isn't already naturally happening. Mm -hmm. So I think some 
you know, you're on a project and all of a sudden you have this great mentor and it just works naturally. Sometimes, but especially when people are new to the firm, that it takes a little while to find that. And we don't want to lose people our first, second year, third year into the firm. We want to make sure they have that support right out of the gate. So we try to help curate those mentor-mentee relationships. You know, what I appreciate about both examples of my friend, Renee Myers has become mm-hmm. famous for her saying inclusion is being asked to the party. Belonging is being asked to dance. Yeah. And so the mentor relationship is mm-hmm. so important. It's one thing so to be is. brought in and brought to mm-hmm. the table, but how do we help each other feel like we belong there? Yeah. And on that one, we try to have the mentor mentee relationship or counselor be a higher level individual because what we've asked these counselors or mentors to identify is situations where individuals might not be getting the experiences they need. And they have the stature and the years of experience that they can actually jump in and say, whoa, 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 you know, this person's been doing the same thing for a while and they really need X to, to get to the next level and grow and help bridge that. You're really describing some amazing practices, and mm-hmm. I, I would say our best practices. And very proud of our, Shep, I, our group. And mm-hmm. the other, just you keep coming back to how you're fostering these difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. When my my friend Amy Ripka is um, CEO of a company called Lucy Therapeutics, and mm-hmm. she introduced me to this idea that you know, as leaders, we're like the tip of the spear, mm-hmm. and we have to go in, and we've got to lead sometimes into that difficult space, but in order to, to advance. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like the practices you're implementing here, you're trying, you're, you know, you're, this is a leadership behavior of, of, of Mm -hmm. leading the way. So Jane, as we wrap up, what's one idea or wish Mm -hmm. you want to leave us with for the future, a next practice or something Mm -hmm. that you think is out of reach today? This might not relate to allyship, but I would love a transformation in our higher education system. So when you think of the way I buy groceries today, I 90% is home delivery. Mm-hmm. Didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. If I go to order something and it's going to take a month, I'm like, what? Not two days? I know. <laughs> right. It's like everything's changed. Right? Right. It's completely changed. And when I see folks trying to get a degree, there's so many barriers, the cost. Mm -hmm. And then not just the cost, but the time. You know, if, if somebody's working two, three jobs, if they go to school, not only can they not afford it, but they're losing hourly wages that they need to put food on the table. Right. And then there's the inherent inequalities. So you know, if my kids are struggling in math, they get a tutor. Right. If they're trying to go to college, get a college coach. Mm-hmm. You know, what about folks who can't afford that, who are then competing with kids that can? There's so much. I would love to see more of a private, public, learn on the job while you're getting paid and get that degree through on-the-job type training and just a real working with the higher education institutions, but a disruption to have the traditional four-year live-on-campus type arrangement. It's fantastic. And it's you've talked a lot about leadership behavior and action in mm-hmm. the workplace that you are trying to role model and are implementing here. And you're kind of zooming out to really look at 
what's the whole system? What's the pipeline of talent that's coming in? And we need to start, you know, so and back great. at that early stage. We do. There's so much talent out there, so much talent out there. And is the four-year degree and the way that we're currently structured inhibiting that talent from reaching its full potential? So that would be my wish. Jane Steinmetz, Managing Principal of EY. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you better. And thank you so very much for your time and sharing your wisdom and insight and amazing practices here at EY. You're our first podcast and we are very grateful. Thank you. Well, I'm honored. Thank you so much for forming this series. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Allyship, a podcast of the Boston Club, New England's premier women's leadership organization, You can find resources and links from this episode in the show notes at www.thebostonclub.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. This is your host, Lisa Pryor, President. Be well and ask yourself, what's one thing I could do today to be an ally?